Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord our God, your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, may it cut through us today. May it cut to our hearts. Slice through everything that is standing between us and you. That we might know you more. That we might love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been Christian for any longer than I'd say about five minutes, you've probably started to feel the pressure to go back. The pressure from a world which does not share your view of Jesus. Now sometimes that pressure can be explicit that people might directly call you to let go of certain beliefs that come with following Jesus. Certain things that follow on from trusting in Jesus 
as Lord, Jesus teaching about marriage, for example. Or it might be a more subtle pressure, an unspoken thing, distracting you away from Jesus as you knew him when you first became a Christian. We're kind of encouraging you towards this, trying to integrate Jesus into the life that you had before. And against this, Paul says in chapter 2 of Colossians and verse 6, So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And then in verse 7, he describes what that looks like. It looks like being rooted, being built up in him. It looks like being strengthened in the faith that you were taught. It looks like overflowing with thankfulness. All these things that you felt and that you had that characterized your coming to Jesus in the first place characterize your ongoing life as a Christian. This all very much calls back to his prayer in chapter 1, that they would live a life worthy of Christ, that they would be strengthened, that they would give joyful thanks. This is something that he prays for them, but he also calls them to take a part in it, to not just sit there passively and wait for it to happen, but to go for it and, and play a part themselves. And this is Really what he wants from them as he writes this letter, this is the big response that he is asking for them. This is why he's written. The big action he's taking is, as you started with Jesus as Lord, go on with Jesus as Lord. As this is God's word for us, the same response is called for. Don't just start your Christian life with Jesus as Lord. Keep him there. He started in in chapter 1 with this, this big view of Jesus as Lord, which he shared with us, this colossal Christ who is standing astride the universe in victory over sin and death and standing above every other power that you could conceive in the world, or visible or invisible. Everything is beneath Christ as Lord. But then, from there, last week we started to see that there's actually a gap. There's a gap between that description of Jesus and our felt experience. That though Jesus is Lord, he is not known as Lord yet. We don't yet fully see him as Lord, and that is true in the outside world where Jesus is not recognized at all. And that is true for Christians, where we always have more to go, more to, more to see of Jesus as Lord, more ways in which we can grow in maturity. And so there's this gap between Jesus as Lord and Jesus known as Lord that, that Paul is kind of camping out in for the rest of this letter. And that's why in chapter 2, verse 4, he warned them, I tell you this so that nobody might deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. In other words, there are things that might sneak into this gap and fill it and slowly start to push out Jesus. But what is it? What might deceive them? And what might deceive us? What is it that would make us, having started 
our Christian lives with this such a clear sight of Jesus as Lord, King, Savior, having started that way to then drift off into other things and sideline Jesus. Perhaps if you stop and take a look at your heart, you might recognize some of the symptoms of that happening. Perhaps that overflow of thankfulness has dried up a little bit. Perhaps that faith seems to be lacking in strength. Or or that being built up, the construction works have been kind of stalled or rained off. The growth of the knowledge of Christ has come to a standstill because something else has slipped into the gap. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. What makes us stagnate in our knowledge of Christ rather than grow is being captivated with other kinds of knowledge, with human kinds of knowledge. He calls this philosophy. He calls it human traditions. This is about filling the gap to knowing Jesus more with other kinds of knowledge that are really rooted in ourselves. And the key to why this knowledge is so dangerous is explained in this phrase in verse 8, elemental spiritual forces. Unfortunately, that's a really confusing phrase. Um, It's very difficult in the original language to translate, but If we spend a little time on it, I think we can see uh, what it means, and we can see in it two cultural pressures, two pressures that the Colossian Christians are facing, two things that are trying to sneak into that gap. I think we might also see something of our own culture, of the pressures we face in them as well. Now, the word that is here is literally kind of like our word element. It is about the basic components of something, the the most basic parts of a thing. So the elements of the alphabet are its letters. The elements of music are musical notes. The elements of chemistry, no, they're they're smaller things than elements now, aren't they? But when that that name was given, they were the most basic building blocks of something. So that's the the kind of literal meaning, but from there, the word has a kind of a wide range of extended meanings, and two of them are really helpful here. The first is a pressure that is kind of similar to how the word is used in America when they call primary school elementary school. It's about the basic elements. It's about the basic principles of a field of knowledge. So in elementary school, you learn the elements of knowledge. You learn the basics of maths, of science, of language that you then build on as you progress in your education. In Hebrews, this word is used when in Hebrews 5.12 when it talks about the elementary truths of God's word. And you'll see this, um, if you have your Bible open and you look down at the footnote, you'll see that there's an alternate translation for that word, which is basic principles. 
And if that's the meaning here, then I think he's referring to kind of the basic religious practices and routines for Jews that would be things like circumcision, like food laws, all the Old Testament laws. And he talks about these a lot in this passage. Here the warning is specifically against Jews and former Jews who are pressuring them, pressuring the Colossians to go back to observing the Jewish law. There's maybe also a non-Jewish angle of this with the philosophy of asceticism, which was similarly constructed of following a set of physical laws in order to reach a kind of spiritual goal. The cultural pressure here is to push Jesus out in favor of a religious routine. Now, our temptations today may not have the same flavor as that. But we do still have the same temptation to let our lives consist of a superficial, outward, physical performance of a relationship with God. To focus on the externals, the physical things, the singing of songs, the saying of words, the coming to church. And not all of these things are bad. In fact, many routines and religious disciplines are very good. But we fall into the, the problem that he's talking about here. We fall into this error when we let the physical things in the Christian life take the place of knowing Jesus rather than help us work towards knowing Jesus. Where, where fasting or coming to church or whatever it is become ends in themselves. Things that we look forward to simply because they are what they are rather than because they help us know Jesus more, because they build up and strengthen our faith in Jesus. We can construct whole sets, whole systems and sets of rules and lists of things and expectations that we have to do. Even in the culture around us, the rules may change, but there's still the same pursuit of satisfaction in the inner life through physical things. Whether that's retail therapy, whether that is an obsession with perfecting our bodies, whether it is the sexual revolution, it's all the same thing. It is all attempting to find inner fullness through ex a performance of external things. So that's the first pressure, it is religious routine. But I think there's also another sense of this word, which is in that, that translation of, of elemental spiritual forces, which is also true here. The second pressure they face, I call it spiritual speculation. And it's this fascination with things in the spiritual world other than Jesus. You see a bit of a glimpse of it in, in verse 18. It's described as the worship of angels. It's people who go into great detail about what they've seen and they're puffed up with idle notions in their unspiritual mind. Ironically, this fascination with spiritual things is incredibly unspiritual because it misses the main point, the center of the spiritual world, which is Jesus. It's also mentioned as the powers and authorities in verse 10 and verse 15. That's what he's talking about here. The Colossians are surrounded 
by a Roman culture with a spiritual worldview of a whole pantheon of gods and demigods. And then there was the Jewish flavor of this, which was an obsession with angels and demons and other spiritual things. And, the, uh, and what happens is Jesus just gets pushed to the back of this long list of other interesting spiritual things. And maybe we would like to think that our modern culture is so secular that we are beyond this particular temptation, but I'm not so sure. I feel like our society isn't quite as materialist as we would like to think. If we were, there would be no traction for things like horror movies or yoga. And there's even a Christian version of spiritual speculation where we get so distracted by spiritual talk but by the theological details and debates that we, we start to lose sight of the main thing of we're so, we're so fixated on, on who thinks what about what issue that actually if we, t- if we look at the overall picture of our, of our faith, of our life, Jesus plays a very small part in the end. Not saying theological debate is bad or useless at all, but it's becoming fixated on these, letting them take the place of Christ. So they have these two pressures, two kinds of human knowledge that will stagnate, that will stunt our growth in Christ. Religious routine, spiritual speculation. And Paul describes this kind of philosophy, this kind of knowledge as hollow, as deceptive. It's empty, it's a shell. It's like, it's like you, you have this amazing looking pie. I'm a northerner, so pie illustrations work really well for me. You have this amazing looking pie, and you're so excited for it, and, and you stick your fork in, and it just crumbles, and there's no meat in there at all. It's, it's just, it promised so much, but there's nothing there. It's empty. Now compare that with that emptiness, with the fullness of knowing Jesus. Verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Notice he repeats that fullness. The fullness of God become human. And in him, united to him, you have become full Jesus is full of God because he is fully God. And you as a Christian are united to Jesus, so you are full of Jesus. You're stuffed full of the largest pie possible. There is no room for anything else. Jesus fills us. He fills us more than spiritual speculation because in verse 10, Jesus is head over every power and authority. And he fills us more than religious routine because in verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, not a physical thing, an inner thing that he's given you. In Jesus' death and resurrection and in our taking hold of it by faith in baptism, Paul finds a fullness 
that relegates religious routine and that supplants spiritual speculation. First, he relegates religious routine in verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. In the Old Testament law, circumcision was the physical religious ritual that was used as a sign of belonging to God's people, of being set aside for God. But as a physical act, it could never deliver on the reality that it described. It could never deliver that deep personal knowledge of the, that, it, that follows on from being set aside from, for God, for being with God, for being belonging to God. Bodies got circumcised, but hearts remained far from God. And so we needed a better kind of circumcision. We needed something that was performed not by human hands to bring us into God's people. And God did that. He performs that circumcision. He removes the sin that is keeping us from him by dealing with it on a cross. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See what he's saying here. The, the law, the, the observance of religious routines cannot work as a way to get you in to a right relationship with God, nor can it be the way to maintain your relationship with God. And to say it another way, you, you can't come to terms with ultimate reality. You can't find peace in your inner life by repeating the same actions in the physical world over and over and over again. Even if you root those actions in a moral code or a religious system, whatever the actions are, whatever the code is, it can never make you alive to God like being raised with Christ in baptism can. It can never do that, but you don't need it to do that. You don't need religious routines to do that because Jesus satisfies the demands of the law for you. The law is a big, long list of what it looks like to live close to God. A long list that we've all failed at, that we've actively pulled against. It's a list which condemns us. But I love how Paul puts this, that God nails our legal indebtedness to the cross. As the Romans are hammering those nails into Jesus' hands and feet, God's got a hammer too. And he's nailing onto Jesus everything you ever did against God, everything you ever thought against God, every way in which you have fallen short of the law of God. He is crucifying your sin. Just picture the cross of Jesus in your mind now. Jesus is not on it anymore. Jesus is risen, but there's a piece of paper nailed to it. A long piece of paper blowing in the wind. And on that piece of paper is a list of everything 
you ever did against God. Everything you know you ought to feel ashamed of in his presence. But it's nailed to the cross. God has nailed it to the cross. And he's left it there. It remains there because God has put it there. Jesus rises and you rise with Jesus, but your sin stays there. It stays nailed to the cross, dead forever. It is fluttering in the wind as a banner in memory of what Jesus did for you. He relegates religious routine. And he supplants spiritual speculation. Sorry for the alliteration. Couldn't help myself. The spiritual forces appear again in verse 15. Humiliated. Depowered. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them by the cross. Because there Jesus humiliates them. All other spiritual powers look stupid next to the cross. None of them have any kind of power to deal with all the problems in your inner life, with, with the problems in your heart, with the debt of your sin, with your guilt. None of them have any power to do that. None of them have any kind of life-giving power like the resurrection of Jesus to draw you to God. They're shown for what they are as just hollow, sham, And as for Satan, as for the big bad, the spiritual powers, the great enemy of God, he did his level best to stop the Son of God when he was on earth, weak and vulnerable. Satan threw all his demonic forces at Jesus, and Jesus was just casting them out. Satan lied and manipulated his way into getting Jesus killed, but it all came to nothing, didn't it? Jesus' death turned out to be exactly God's plan to undo Satan. Satan is the great accuser. And with your sin paid for, what is he going to accuse you of? Who can condemn you? Who can stand in the way of you knowing God now? In Christ there is a fullness. That religious routine and that spiritual Speculation can never match. Find fullness. Drink deep of the death and resurrection in Jesus. That is what got you in. That is what keeps you going. That is where you will find fullness. Spend time with the cross. Spend time with the resurrection. Spend time with Jesus. Just go back to the gospel. Go back to the New Testament. Read about it. Come back again and again. Find your knowledge of Jesus as Lord expanding and growing. Find strength in your faith. Find an overflow of thankfulness. And as you find fullness in knowing Christ, learn to avoid emptiness in other kinds of knowledge. Paul's special focus in these closing verses isn't just that religious routine and and spiritual speculation are empty. He's also warning us to avoid the people 
who recommend those things, who pressure us to follow those ways. Not just avoid emptiness, avoid emptiers. Avoid the influence of those who would pressure you to go back to the old knowledge. Verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These things are a shadow of the things that were to come. They're hollow, they're insubstantial, empty. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Religious routine and spiritual speculation only offer what Jesus offers in a superficial, limited way. They only have the power to picture just something of the reality that is found in him. They can't deliver the fullness of it. If you keep coming back to them again and again, you will feel emptier and emptier. And now that Jesus has come, now that you have that fullness on offer, why would you go back? Why would you listen to the people who are condemning you? Who are those people around you who make you feel like you should go back? Perhaps they are outside the church, perhaps even they're within the church. In verse 18 and 19, Paul gives a guide to recognizing them. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Well, how do we know who those people are? Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They love the sound of their own voice a bit too much. They love promoting their own ways, their own methods, their own ideas a bit too much. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. I think Paul is a keen observer of humanity here. Isn't this exactly what happens? That when we give ourselves to these other kinds of knowledge, what we tend to do next is start to look down on people who don't follow us in that. And what we tend to do after that is to start to make them feel bad for not following us in that. Start to make them feel miserable about themselves. It's like we're driving down the wrong side of the road... And, and you see that people are going the other way. Actually, it's you in the wrong, but you're shouting to everyone, come over onto my side, it's much better here. You shout, you're going the wrong way. The result can only be a crash. Or as Paul puts it in verse 19, they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. In Paul's theology in Colossians, Christ is the head and the church is the body, and the church is meant to grow to maturity by staying in Christ, by growing in the knowledge of Christ. But if we fall back into human knowledge, into religious routines, into spiritual speculation... That's like having your head separated from your body. Now, I'm no doctor, but 
You don't keep on growing without your head. It's, it's a pretty basic... Um, it's the elements of medical practice. Headless chicken might run around for a while. I don't know if that's true. But in the end, even the headless chicken comes to a stop. We won't keep on growing if we lose our connection to Christ, if we throw ourselves in to knowing other things, we will die. Don't go back. And to reassure you, to give you confidence that there is no need to go back, Paul looks to the victory of Jesus on the cross, but he looks also to our connection to that victory on the cross. Look back at at verse 11. It's halfway through. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Your whole self was put off in baptism. Your, your old self was killed. It was buried with him in baptism. So why would you go back? In verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Just as food goes off, human commands and physical things have an expiration date. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. It seems like because you're working hard, you're getting somewhere, but they lack any actual value in restraining sensual indulgence. Human knowledge, whether we're talking about religious routine or spiritual speculation, cannot stop the sinful impulses in your heart spinning out of control. They can only operate on the surface. Only Christ can dive into your heart and do the surgery that needs to be done. Only he can deal with the real problem. Only he can have your sin nailed to his cross. So avoid emptiness. Let no one deceive you. Let no one make you feel disqualified. Let no one make you feel you have to go back. Let no one bog you down in rituals or speculations as a way to know Jesus more, as a way to get on in the spiritual life. Let no one condemn you. You already know Jesus. And as you began with Jesus as Lord, go on with Jesus as Lord. Let's pray, shall we?
Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything that is achieved in your death and in your resurrection. We thank you for the, the wonderful victory that was won there. And we thank you for the offer of uniting us to that in our baptism through faith. Lord, we praise you that in this we can be a part of that victory. In this we have fullness. And we confess, Lord Jesus, that so often we are distracted by other kinds of knowledge. We look to them as ways to get on, to improve, to do better. Lord, help us to keep you at the centre. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to find fullness in you for your glory and our good. Amen.